Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I told my mom, like, I signed you up for snack. And she was just like, son of a... Because it was like, you're supposed to make something. And she just like grabbed a box of Jiffy cornbread. She sort of like threw something else in to make the thing seem a little more homemade. Kids were like, because I was in probably a white private school at that point. Ooh, oh. And she just laughs about the thing that those kids thought they were getting some sort of like homemade African-American classic <laughs> deep home recipe. Welcome to Your Mama's Kitchen, the podcast that explores how we're shaped as adults by the kitchens we grew up in as kids. I'm Michelle Norris. My guest today is W. Kamal Bell. And among other things, we talk about his quest to find a taste of home. And for him, that means the taste of fried pies. Now, some of you hear the word fried pie and you think of those little apple fritter things you get at McDonald's or those hostess treats. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about fried pies that are made in somebody's kitchen. Little pouches of pie crust dough that are fluted around the edges and stuffed with a hot, gooey, sugary fruit filling. Apples, cherries, peaches, my personal favorite. And the best part, the whole thing, that little crescent-shaped confection, is fried up to a beautiful golden brown crisp. It's a little pocket-sized, single-serving dessert that you would have all to yourself. And it has a deep history that's rooted in in the South, just like today's guest. W. Kamau Bell is a comedian, activist, and writer known for his biting commentary on race and inequality in America. He's exposed some of the ugliest parts of America's history and our current division in his work, while at the same time managing to make us laugh. He was the host of his own show, United Shades of America, on CNN. He produced a documentary called We Need to Talk About Cosby, and more recently, the HBO film about a generation of multiracial children called 1000% Me. Kamal was born in Palo Alto when he lived in Boston, Indianapolis, and Chicago. But every summer, he always returned to his father's home in Mobile, Alabama. Those were summers filled with family, community, and a lot of food. And to this day, even though he's lived in the Bay Area in Northern California for years, he still sees the Gulf Coast town of Mobile as his true home. And that's what brings us to those fried pies. That's the taste of home for Kamal. Not his mama's fried pies, but her mama's fried pies. It's a taste he can remember but can't quite replicate because his grandmother never wrote the recipe down. 
In this episode, we learn about what Kamau has learned looking over his shoulder to assess how the elders in his life influenced his journey. This is a podcast that begins with a simple question. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. And I know the answer is going to be interesting because your your mama is, is someone who's done some stuff. Yeah. I mean, the room that my mom is probably least interested in in any place she's ever lived has been the kitchen. That is not her area. Like, it's not that she's a—I wouldn't say she's a bad cook. She just is doing what she needs to do to get the job done. And what so. does that mean? That means I have a child. I have to feed this child. <laughs> like, like, And I do understand that like, I would like my child to eat vegetables and I'd like my child to not eat the same thing every day. Looking back, it's like explaining beanie weenies to people. It feels like I'm talking about a story of neglect. But it was wait, wait like, beanie weenies? Beanie weenies. Tell me about a beanie weenie. I think it was literally, and I'm, if my mom's going to hear this, but I think it was literally a can of pork and beans poured into a casserole dish and then like three or four hot dogs put in that dish, and then put it in an oven for a period of time. And that was dinner? I don't think there were other things added to it. We did a lot of garlic powder in my house, so maybe there was some <laughs> garlic powder. But then there'd be a salad. Like, you know, so it wasn't, just, it wasn't just pork and beans. It was only when I got older and left and went to other people's houses that understood the ranges of cooking that some moms did. My mom was very clear that, like, like she came from— like, she grew up in a house where her mom was, like, the classic— like black mom and therefore black grandmother. I know all the recipes, but none of them are written down. And I will just go in the kitchen and make some things happen. And nobody's going to really know what I'm doing. And my mom, I think, really stayed out of that room because I think she associated that space with domesticity. And mm-hmm. that was the last thing my mom wanted to be looked at as someone who had been domesticated. And your mother was, she's an academic. Yeah. She has her own publishing house. She has published several books herself. Mm -hmm. So she didn't necessarily see a domesticated role for herself? No, she was, you know, single black mom back when that was like a slur. Broken home was a thing that they would say on the news, like that was a technical term. So, and we would laugh about it, like, Kamal, you realize you live in a broken home? And we would laugh and laugh and laugh. And I would see my dad in the summer, so I had a connection to him. But she was out there, like, hustling and working and started working out in, like, corporate America and helping to edit English textbooks. And so the kitchen was a place where it's like, not, and again, I'm not trying to put it. She just was like, I need to feed my child, but I also need to be efficient about it because I got a lot of things to do. Because I got stuff do. to do. <laughs> yeah. A lot happens in a kitchen. There's a lot of business that happens, you know, yeah. within those four walls. And sometimes it has nothing to do with what you serve on the plate or cook up on the stove. What else was happening in that kitchen? I joke about it now, but we cared more about conversation and connection than we cared about the food necessarily. As a kid, I didn't think of the food was bad. The food, I love beanie weenies. I loved my mom's uh, spaghetti and meat sauce. Like, I love these things. But it was more about, like, conversation and connection. Like, I think me and my mom were just always in the midst of conversation And I always felt like nothing was off limits. And also our house was like wall-to-wall books. So there was just always conversation about books. There's always conversation about TV. My mom, when I was a little kid, would listen to all of my Bruce Lee trivia facts, whether she cared or not, because she just wanted to be in conversation. Whereas I don't know that my dad ever like wanted to know about any of the things like I was interested in on that level. Whereas my mom was sort of like open to like, I mean, the best example is, sure, we can talk about the TV show The Dukes of Hazard and how you love the car the General Lee. <laughs> like, you know, like she was just sort of like, this is what my child wants to talk about. We will be in conversation about it. She just wanted to hear you talk. Yes. 
I heard Damon Wayans say this one time that his mom was like, if he drew a circle on a piece of paper, she was like, you're Picasso. And I was like, yeah, that's the mom I had. So when you have kids and you're trying to have conversations with them, particularly when they go through the tween years and then the teen years, it's almost like trying to keep a balloon in the air that doesn't have, that doesn't have helium in it. Mm-hmm. And you're hitting it. You're trying to keep it up. You're trying to keep up that conversation. Keep it going. Keep it going. And kids enter a space at some point where they kind of don't want to talk to you. How was your day? Fine. Yeah. What are you doing? Uh, you know, whatever. Mm, yeah, yeah. But you kept talking. Yeah. What was yeah. the secret? Why is it that she was able to keep that door of communication open even when you entered that phase that for a lot of kids is a shutdown phase? Yeah, I mean, any of my stuff that happened in high school, like the sort of the teen years, none of it disconnected me from my mom. I think she really understood that it was like the two of us against the world and she was sort of raising a friend and not raising a son. Now, her friend was her son, but I also didn't feel like there was not an authoritative feeling in my house. Like, there wasn't a feeling of, like, whereas with my dad, and I would spend summers with him, he was my father. He was older than me. I've done more than you. I've known more than you, which creates distance. So it's interesting as I hear you as a black man say that your mom was raising a friend because for a lot of folks who grow up in African-American households, they often hear, I'm not your friend. That's what you hear from your mom. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not one of your little friends. You know, you can do that with one of your little friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. don't talk to me like that. Yeah, but you never heard any of that. No, because I felt like my opinion mattered to her. I only don't say this now because it would probably sound weird. But for years as a kid, if you'd asked me like, "Who are your best friends?" I would have listed my mom as one of my best friends. That's beautiful. Yeah, and at the time, and you get to an age where like that sounds weird, but like, but at the time, I didn't know it was. It just was like we had a really close relationship while at and the same time. And you still do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. She lives here in Oakland. You know, my kids see her regularly. Yeah, we have a real close relationship. But like, I just didn't, I didn't think that my opinion didn't matter. But also at the same time, we were super independent. Like we lived in Boston. I look back now and go, man, how'd she pull that off? It was like a three bedroom house with a finished basement, just two people. And I would like wake up and make myself a bowl of cereal and, on a Saturday and watch cartoons all day. And she would be in her room or in, in the living room doing stuff. So like I felt a real sense of independence, while at the same time, a real sense of community kinship, communication, open lines of communication. Did she have a kitchen personality? Was she huh. different when she walked in the kitchen? Because for some people, <laughs> men, women, all kinds of people yeah. spend time in the kitchen. Sometimes they become more officious. Sometimes yeah. they become more felicitous. What personality did she take on when she entered that space? Sometimes it's like, let me do what I got to do so I can get out of here. Whatever it is. What was your mom's personality? I was funny. As I thought, like, what was her kitchen personality? Because I never thought of it. It was like, for some reason, Liam Neeson and Taken comes to mind. (laughs) (laughs) I have a set of skills. Like, I'm here to do the things I need to do. I'm not doing more than that. I'm here to feed you. And once I've made the thing, I can then relax and move on to the next thing. Clean it up and then move on. There's a story that my mom likes to tell is that I was in, like, First grade, and you had to sign your parents up to bring a snack. And so that morning, I told my mom, like, I signed you up for snack. And she was just like, son of a... (laughs) Because it was like, you're supposed to make something. This was the era (laughs) of, like, you're not allowed to just bring a package of things. She's supposed to make something. And she just, like, grabbed a box of Jiffy, (laughs) like like Jiffy cornbread, a classic staple in black households, especially of that era, and, like, made Jiffy cornbread and I think put some raisins in it. Like, she just was like... She put raisins in cornbread? Don't quote me on this, but there was some sort of, like... If she hears this and she says, don't you tell somebody I put raisins in the cornbread. Maybe, let's say, it was a muffin mix, but there was some sort of like, she sort of like threw something else in to make the thing seem a little more homemade and then took it to school. And the thing is, I remember kids were like, because I was in 
probably a white private school at that point. Ooh, oh. And she just laughs about the things that those kids thought they were getting some sort of like homemade African-American classic deep home recipe. And it was a box of something in our house that she just sort of begrudgingly <laughs> made quickly. A word about Jiffy Cornbread, though. No hate. For Jiffy Cornbread. No, 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 no. No, I have nothing but respect for you. If you hand me cornbread, I'm still expecting it to taste like Jiffy to this day. It's the default. It's the and then I sort of like, huh, it doesn't taste like dessert. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. This isn't cornbread. Because right, you wonder, have you looked at that little blue box on the side to see what the sugar content is? I thought, in? Yeah, no, no, because no, it, sure. is it is kind of sweet. There's a reason it tastes like dessert. As you know, I typically ask my guests to describe their mama's kitchen. But in Kamau's case, he spent every summer with his father in Mobile, Alabama. And so I wanted to hear about that kitchen, too, since Mobile is the city he considers his true home. When I think about visiting my dad in Mobile, and I lived there for two and a half years at one point, so I did spend some extended time there. But it's not my dad's kitchen I'm talking about. I'm talking about my stepmother's kitchen. And my stepmother's kitchen, Larissa... She since passed away. She was the opposite of my mom. She would get up and you'd get a breakfast and it would be like freshly cooked grits, not instant grits. Koneka sausages, which is like very Southern, very Southern sausages. You know, I'm thinking about a special breakfast. There might be fried oysters, cream of wheat, cut up fruit, especially for like a special breakfast. And then you go, man, that was great. And you look in the kitchen. What's she doing? She's working on lunch. And this is a woman who was, like, also a, a registered nurse. This is just, this room is very important to me. I got the latest gadgets. This is before the internet. I'm collecting recipes. She was part of a gourmet club. And then dinner is, like, a whole other thing. So it's like, they couldn't be more polar opposites. And I enjoyed the food out of both those kitchens. But the food out of Larissa's kitchen was, like, an event. As close as you are to your mother and, and how you've moved around, that when you think of home, you often think of Mobile. Why is that? Because those places are still there. There are still people in those places who know me since I was a kid or know me since I was younger. So I can go to the church that my grandmother used to go to. I can literally walk from that church to her house that is now abandoned. I mean, I don't know if it is now, but when we went, it was abandoned. Those sense memories, the streets look the same. It hasn't like been totally gentrified and turned into something else. There's still going to be an old lady who's like, I've known you since you were a baby. And I'm like, ma'am, I met you when I was in high school. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like. Well, to her, you're a baby. You're younger than her. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my dad still lives there. So there's a reason to go back. Whereas like, I lived in Indianapolis when I was a kid from like, I don't know, from little baby till I was like four. I have no idea what that apartment complex looks like. And so Mobile, because I've been going there my whole life. There's always like, ah, oh, this little tiny airport. It feels very familiar in a way that like as a kid, I resented, but as an adult, I came to really appreciate. And then as an adult who had kids, it was like, I got to take you guys to Mobile. And when you took your kids to Mobile, you took them to the Mardi Gras parade. My oldest daughter, yeah, we went yeah. to Mardi Gras. Yeah. Mobile is the home of Mardi Gras. People think it's New Orleans, but it actually all began in Mobile. It began in Mobile in New Orleans. People are listening right now, getting in their feelings about it. Facts. But the way the math maths <laughs> is that it started in Mobile. The difference is in Mobile, Mardi Gras is a very church-filled, community organization, child-friendly thing. New Orleans took it a different direction. When you went back to Mobile for United Shades of America, your show on CNN— it was really hard for you. I mean, it was a beautiful thing to watch, but it was a difficult thing to watch because you put your emotions mm -hmm. right 
out there for everybody yeah. to see. And you edited that, so you could have cut yeah. that out. Oh, yeah. But you decided yeah. to keep that there. Why was that so difficult? And why did you decide to share that aspect of your story? So what happened was the producer that year, we were like, oh, we're going to shoot that scene at your grandmother's house. And I was like, okay. And suddenly we pull up and I look and it's abandoned and it's boarded up. And I just viscerally like start weeping. I felt a little bit like, again, like you're not treating me like a person. You're treating me like, well, host, we'll take the host to his dead grandmother's house and he'll talk about it. And so I'm, all my feelings are firing off. You didn't know what you were going to see when you got there. And didn't know how it was going to affect me. And I sort of, at that moment, like, somebody should have thought this through. Somebody should be thinking about my experience. It wasn't until years in the show, Mo Fallon, one of my best friends who became a producer, so who was always thinking about my experience. So then there was the cameraman, Patrick Higgins, who was the director of photography in the show. We had formed a real friendship. And the first time I ever cried on the show, I was like, Patrick, come here, because I knew he would just get the shot. I'm talking to the viewer at home, but I'm really talking to Patrick. So in that moment, I was like, Call Patrick, tell him to get his camera up as soon as possible. You wanted him to catch your emotions? You know, it takes camera people a while to get their stuff together if they're just sort of doing yeah. it. If we wait a half hour, it's just not going to be the same. And I know that whatever value there is in me having this emotional reaction, it's only worth it for the show if we catch it. So it had to be authentic. Yeah, and I just wanted to have the show where I wanted, where in the moment I could talk directly to the camera about how I was feeling, and we can cut it out later if it sucks. When you went back to Mobile, you weren't just a host. You were a grandson and mm-hmm. a son looking mm-hmm. at a house mm-hmm. that a once cousin. was vibrant yeah. and full of love yep. and activity and had a kitchen that was the heartbeat and centerpiece of that house and then it was It's filled with Sears catalogs and my grandmother's, she had a room that was just for her to sew in because she was the person in the neighborhood where people brought her stuff to like make this or fix this. And I laid on the floor watching her watch Another World and and Santa Barbara and other soap operas and The Price is Right. And me and my cousin N.K. Jemison would go down the hall to the front of the house. The, the science s- fiction yeah, author. Yeah, the highly Very well-known, highly yes. acclaimed author where of we were science both fiction. Like, six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds who would go to the front of the house where the sun would come in because it was warmer up there because the air conditioning was too cold. You know, and we would like sit there and I would draw and she would write and we would talk about what we were going to do. And I was going to be a comic book artist and she was going to be a writer. Well, half worked out. And the house was then rented to somebody else. And I got to go in the house one time after it had been rented to somebody else. It was just weird to see a bunch of strangers in this house that was not their house. Get out of this house. And take your stuff. This is not supposed to be here. I mean, my grandma's house is the house, literally, living room, nobody goes into, furniture covered in plastic. Like that house. Never entertained in the living room. (laughs) Nobody was told to sit down, and things are literally covered in plastic. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the Audible original, Your Mama's Kitchen. Like what you're hearing? The next episode is available now exclusively from Audible. Visit audible.com slash kitchen and hit the follow button for the latest episodes each week. You can listen to new episodes on Audible two weeks before you can hear them anywhere else. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. I love to be able to cook in a kitchen and have a good meal with the people I care about all around me. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen at a big island. And we were able to all get in and do our thing together and sit down in the adjoining dining room and have a long, loud meal and then clean up afterwards and continue the conversation. I loved being able to do that. And Airbnb allowed that to happen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. Hosting your home on Airbnb is a great way to make some extra money. It's very practical as a side hustle. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? I know, I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball. And it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. Available multi-terrain select. With all of these options, you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Food can invoke strong memories and sometimes strong opinions. You may recall that in one of our previous episodes, CBS News host Gail King had mentioned that Kamau had appeared on her show wearing a shirt that was essentially a manifesto on mac and cheese. He was wearing a t-shirt, no joke, that said, all mac and cheese is not created equal. And he's right about that. There are no lies detected. Yes. <laughs> we heard her side of the story in her episode. In this episode, I want to hear his. You walked into the studio wearing a hoodie or a T-shirt that said, not all mac and cheese is created equal. That's right. And apparently there was a conversation because some of the people on set understood that and some of them didn't. No, there was a white man who was also the journalist there. Tony. Tony was like, what does that mean? And I sort of looked at Gail and also looked at... uh, Nathan. 
Nathan, yeah. And I was like, I sort of like, you want to step in here? Like, you want to step in here? Because like, this is your man's. I don't want to get into any sort of weird conversation. So Gail and Nate looked at each other and went, they yeah, understood? Yeah. And then somebody picked up the conversation because I just felt like I'm in your house. I don't want to like school you on a thing. So maybe somebody else can help you. So maybe you can school the audience on the words on that t-shirt. Not all mac and cheese is created equal. So it is a company called Mahogany Mommies, which I always want to rep. It's a black woman-owned apparel company that has a, many amazing sweatshirts and t-shirts. Shout out to Mahogany Mommies. Yeah, so that it feels very authentically black. And that one just felt so, like, surreptitious in it's what it's saying. I grew up only seeing Kraft Macaroni and Cheese in commercials for Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. I never had it until I was an adult. And so, like, going, like, huh. And it was all these commercials about, it's the cheesiest mac and cheese. And you'd see it in the commercial, and it'd be like, that doesn't even look like mac and cheese to me. I don't even read that. It's macaroni noodles and then, like, nacho cheese sauce on the top of it. Like, I don't I don't read that as macaroni and cheese. Like, I just don't. Because to me, mac and cheese is, like, a thing that is, like, baked. You know, you got to put it in the oven. It's got to be crusty and brown on the top. Now I know there's breadcrumbs on there sometimes. At the time, I didn't know. And you like you cut it into like big thick squares of mac and cheese that hold together. When you ask somebody if their mac and cheese recipe, if they only use one type of cheese, you're like, uh oh, I'm sorry. You know, it's gotta have like you're multiple. not bringing the mac and cheese. Oh uh, yeah, no, yeah, function. please don't bring the mac and cheese to the house. So yeah, we'll we'll take care of that. You bring the Jiffy cornbread. But yes, literally, I made it the other day because my middle kid wanted me to make mac and cheese, and we do do box mac and cheese in our house. We do Annie's because we're sedity. So we will do that sometimes, but Juno was like, I want data mac and cheese, which is such a great thing to hear it called data mac and cheese. It's, but, oh, yeah, I would strut on that forever. Yeah, no, for sure. It's definitely like you go, man, it takes me like an hour to make it even. Uh, okay. So what's so special about data mac and cheese? You, you make the sauce in a separate pan. I mean, there's a recipe I find. And let me be clear, like my mom, I find the best thing to do is don't just Google mac and cheese recipe. Google easy mac and cheese recipes so you don't end up in some weird high-end New York Times recipe that takes three days to make. That says you got to order the cheese from France or else it's not really. And then if you go easy mac and cheese, it doesn't mean they're not good recipes. It just means they're like they're aware that you're a person who's got other things to do. So so what kind of cheese do you use? Gruyere. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I can say a medium cheddar. Do you put breadcrumbs? And if you do, I do. The panko, rec- this is what or? I'm saying. The recipe does not call for breadcrumbs on the top, but... I keep it real. So I throw some breadcrumbs on the top. And then the key part is under the broiler before you serve it. Because that's how you get the crust, the chewy mm-hmm. bits. Otherwise, it's going to all be soft. And the thing to do a good mac and cheese is texture. You want to hear when the spoon goes into the mac yes. and cheese. And everybody fights for the corners because that's yes, where Yes, you want the nice corners to be extra chewy. So you got to put it under the broiler. When you put it under the broiler, it'll say two or three minutes in the broiler. But you should know in your kitchen, everybody's broiler is different. Yeah, because the last thing you want to do is put all that time into a mac and cheese and then have it come out as a crispy, burnt, black no, no, mess. You, <laughs> don't walk away from a broiler is some good advice. Don't get a haircut before a big occasion and don't walk away from a broiler. We know you from your work. And you make people think and you make people laugh. And you ask uncomfortable questions. You use your platform. This is one of the reasons that I love what you do. I'll say that to you. Thank you for doing your work. I love what you do. Thank you. And you take that microscope and you turn it toward the most difficult things. Mm -hmm. How much of that, that thread, that vein in your work comes from your upbringing, and particularly the kitchens that you grew up in? A hundred percent. When you rise through the levels of privilege, if you are a person who is black in America and gets a level of privilege, 
part of your job is the part that is like, make it better for other folks. And so my mom, it's not an accident that she was publishing books of black quotations and not books of quotations by plumbers. You know, like she was like, I have the ability to self-publish these books. I'm going to make it count. My dad, who was a corporate America guy, who was like working for insurance companies, was also like, we don't have enough black people here. He was like doing DEI work before there was an acronym for it. And so now I'm in this position of like, I sort of have both of them inside of me, where like my mom's the outside agitator, my dad's the inside agitator, and I'm sort of like bopping back and forth. Like I'm just sort of like bopping around. If you had asked me when I was a kid watching Saturday Night Live, what do you want to be? I would have said, I want to be a comedian like Eddie Murphy. But then I got to a point of like, when I was sort of figuring out, wait, what is my career? Wait, I don't think I just want to be funny for the sake of funny, which is nothing wrong with that. And then it becomes about also having people hold the door open for me, like Chris Rock back in the day, and being very clear about why he was doing it, because unfamous black guys don't get TV shows, so I'm going to help you. So that example is like, oh, then that's literally what I'm supposed to do too. You have three kids. I have three kids, yeah. Sammy's the oldest, Juno's the middle kid, Asha's the youngest. All girls. All girls, girl factory. (laughs) How do you create the kind of space that will nourish your kids in terms of not just the food that they need, not just, you know, to make their bodies grow strong, but to make their minds and their spirits grow strong? So Juno was like, I want data mac and cheese. And Juno has sometimes expressed interest in like, I want to help. And so I was like, okay, but you got to help me. And so then it becomes about bringing Juno into the kitchen We are then in community in a way different than if I just make the mac and cheese and put it on the plate. So not only is she legitimately helping, and I kept telling her, like, you are making this go so much faster, which is true. Now, I am supervising, but she's also, like, making it go faster because I don't have to do all of it. It's a way to connect specifically, like, in that moment with my kid, with Juno, in a way that we wouldn't connect otherwise. And it's also, it starts to develop the thing that happened for me. She will forever... I think, associate mac and cheese with dad as mac and cheese. And she will one day put on a sweatshirt that says, not all mac and cheese is created equal. (laughs) Because she will know, she will eventually be at somebody's house where she's like, what? Oh, no, that's not how you do it. It's that time of the podcast where I ask our guests about a recipe from their mama's kitchen. And Kamau's situation is a little different, maybe a little challenging, because as we heard earlier, his mom was not exactly an enthusiastic cook. So instead, he reached for a recipe from his mama's mama's kitchen. But sadly, she never wrote that recipe down. And Kamau has spent his lifetime thinking about the recipe that died with his grandmother. My grandmother used to make a thing called fried pies. The way I describe it, I was like, you know, like a hostess apple pie, but oh, real. Oh, the fritters. The ones yeah. that are, it's like an empanada. It's folded yeah, yeah, over exactly. and pinched yeah. together at the edge. Yeah. I know it exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, she called them fried pies. And so that was like the special recipe. They would Usually they were with peaches, I think. Mm. And Oh man, peaches. I, I assume yeah. you were talking about apples. But then when you no. say peaches, that takes no. it to a whole nother level. It was like an individual peach cobbler. That's <laughs> how so I would describe it. Like a handheld peach cobbler. Which peach cobbler is proof that there is something in the universe bigger than the rest of us. It sounds like that's the taste of home for you. Yeah, I mean, that's a taste that I sort of, like, I haven't had in, let's see. She died when I was in high school, so it's been well over 30 years. And I don't think she made them right before she died, so it's like there's no written down recipe anywhere. She probably learned that recipe before she could read. She didn't go that far in school, so, you know. So I'm going to ask our listeners to help you out. All right. So if you're listening to this. Ooh, I like this. And you grew up with fried pies. If you are a baker 
and you think that you can help Kamau recreate, make a pilgrimage back to the fried <laughs> pies of his youth. Yeah. If you think you have something to add to this journey, we want to hear from oh, you. Oh, that'd be amazing. We're going to figure out how to do that. And I spend a lot of time in the Bay Area because my kids are there. And maybe we'll oh, figure out how to make those fried pies oh, that together. Would be great. That would be That gets me excited. That'd be great. This was in Indianapolis when she made them, but she was from Kentucky. So that helps it all. <laughs> I, don't know if he, I don't know if you need that information, but that's what happened. What was so special about those fried pies? I mean, like I said, it was like a handheld peach cobbler. So if you, whatever you think. Were they the, big? Were they, were they kind of bite-sized? I mean, like I said, or? the hostess... Apple pie. Because those were kind of large. Yeah, but they, they were de- like yeah. three or four bites. Yeah, these were three or four bites. These might have been four or five bites. These were not little individual bites. Like I'm holding it like a big iPhone, like, except <laughs> filled with peaches instead of filled with, uh, you know, whatever it's filled with. But yeah, it's a thing you hold in your hand that has, the, and again, it's been over 30 years, but has some weight and you take a bite and it's hot. And so the crust has a proper mouthfeel. It's brown, like sort of a light brown on the outside. Of course, with the first bite, heat comes out. You can't even taste it yet because it's just hot with the peach aftertaste. But super like that gooey peach cobbler mm-hmm. thing that some people don't like that I like a lot. peaches get that kind of jelly yep. gelatinous yep. thing it's that goes that. on inside but there. But there's still peaches in there, so it's not just jam. There's still peaches that you can bite down on, and it just— Yeah, ooh. stone fruit does that. You know, people who make a good peach cobbler often have a little secret that they put into a peach cobbler because sometimes there's an undernote. An undertone, mm, kind of a bass mm, note mm. in there. I have a dear friend who used to put cayenne pepper. Whoa. Just a little, little hit. Just a little, just a of little. That. Sometimes just a little. little clove, sometimes a little yeah. nutmeg. Do you remember? Did she have a little something, something in there? That- like I said, I would have been too young to be in the kitchen. It's also times of like nobody saying, come in the kitchen and help me, little boy. But like, did you taste was that? Saying- was there something that you remember that it had a little kick to it? It is more than it looks like. I definitely yeah. know that. I would imagine there's probably a nutmeg thing happening in there. You know, I feel like that's a common thing in baking is to throw a little nutmeg in there. But yeah, there's definitely more than meets the eye or the mouth. We're going to figure that out. One way or another, we're going to get that recipe back to you. (laughs) If I made them for my mom, that would be hilarious. (laughs) Actually, that'd be pretty wonderful. She'd probably appreciate that. No, she would because it's definitely a... A family like, well, that's gone. And also, like, at the time she made it is infamous between us of like, whew, that wasn't it. Well, and it is an important reminder that our recipes are part of our legacy and our inheritance. Yes. And so grab them when you can if they're written down. If you can't, watch it. Commit Mm -hmm. it to memory. You know what? It's funny that you say the secret ingredient. I'm sure the secret ingredient was Crisco. <laughs> or was that grease that's on the back that's like bacon grease and all, all the oh, other greases? Oh, that's in the Maxwell house yep, jar yep, that's yeah. in the back of the stove? That yeah. was certainly yeah, a part of it. Yeah. It's funny now, I'll like make bacon and then we have the oil over and I feel weird throwing it away. I'm like, are we supposed to like put it on the back of the stove? <laughs> Everybody grew up with that can on the back of the stove. Yeah, but Melissa says, no, that's not what we do. We have olive oil. Okay. <laughs> Well, you don't make a fried pie in olive oil. I guess you could make it, but it wouldn't no, be No, no, you don't make a fried pie in olive oil, no. I have loved talking to you. Thanks so much for making time for us. Thank you for having me. This has been a beautiful experience. Kamal's story was filled with loving parents, two households, a big supportive community that raised him to be the creative, confident, complex thinker and entertainer that he is today. And it's a delight to hear about the loving and intentional way he's parenting his own kids, particularly in the kitchen. 
I want to repeat something I mentioned earlier because it's important. Our family recipes are part of our legacy, and more important than that, they are a part of our inheritance. So are the lessons we choose to teach our children in our kitchens, intentionally or not, because young people are like sponges, always watching and absorbing what they see and hear. Kamal's mother worked hard to raise him on her own while balancing a career which sometimes meant beanie weenies on the fly or homemade treats for field trips that started with a boxed mix of some kind. No shame in that. Throughout it all, she kept an open line of communication with Kamau, and in return, he felt so comfortable that he confided in her about everything and even considered his mom to be his best friend. Now, that is some A-plus parenting. Kamau may not have the recipe for the delectable fried pies his grandmother used to make, but we did a little digging, asked around, did some experimentation in the kitchen, and found one that we think might come close enough to take him back in time to those childhood memories of feasting on fried pies in his grandma's kitchen back in Mobile, Alabama. So just head to my Instagram to find that recipe and a few tips on perfecting the crust and giving the fruit a little kick with a secret ingredient. And remember, we want to hear about your fried pie recipe, so post it on social media and make sure to use the Your Mama's Kitchen hashtag. Thanks for listening to Your Mama's Kitchen. I hope you have a glorious day. I'm Michelle Norris. See you next time. This has been a Higher Ground and Audible original produced by Higher Ground Studios. Senior producer Natalie Wren, producer Sonia Tun, and associate producer Angel Carreras. Sound design and engineering from Andrew Epen and Roy Baum. Higher Ground Audio's editorial assistants are Jenna Levin and Camilla Thurdikus. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Nick White, Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, and me, Michelle Norris. Executive producers for Audible are Zola Mashariki, Nick D'Angelo, and Ann Hepperman. The show's closing song is 504 by The Soul Rebels. Editorial and web support from Melissa Baer and Say What Media. Our talent booker is Angela Peluso. Special thanks this week to Clean Cuts in Washington, D.C. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki, Chief Content Officer Rachel Giazza. And that's it. Goodbye, everybody. See what we're serving up next week. Copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Higher Ground. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? I know, I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball. And it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. Available multi-terrain select. With all of these options, you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road. 
Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.